Hello and welcome to Rock and Talk with Dak, your podcast for any and all things music. Each week we're talking about something in the world of music, bands, albums, artwork, news, and reviews. Be sure to subscribe to the feed on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. Check out Instagram for Song of the Day. Head over to Twitter to give some feedback or just to say hi. I'm your host, The Dak. Alrighty, let's dive into today's episode. Today is part two of my top ten albums of the 2010s. As I said in the last episode, these albums aren't necessarily going... They're not groundbreaking. They didn't sell like crazy. They're just picks that I think of when I think of the 2010s. Again, these aren't listed in any sort of uh, worst-to-best order or anything. Uh, They're just in chronological order, so picking up from last week. Uh, That said, let's begin. Alrighty, our first album comes from a band that I really haven't listened to uh, but all of four years, I think, now. It's the Swedish rock and metal band Ghost. Um, so they had already released two pretty successful albums by the time Meliora came out in 2015, but it really cemented them as a must-see, must-hear band. The band is known for their uh, onstage persona. It's, God, I don't know, like Catholic meets the devil with a healthy dose of cheesiness? Uh, the lead singer and creative force behind the band, Tobias Forge, he plays a Pope-like figure named Papa Emeritus, or most recently Cardinal Copia. He does a different incarnation every album. It's it's fun. <laughs> uh, so he's all dressed up in the gown and got the, the hat going on. And the rest of the band, uh, they're called the Nameless Ghouls, and they're also dressed up. Um, and then they play the rest of the instruments. Um, I don't think... They're satanic-worshipping heathens, like people think they are. If you pay attention to what they do, and I'm talking to everything, their merchandise, the story, the videos they have in some of their lyrics, they're goofy, and they're just having fun with it. I really don't think there's any sort of actual devil worship going on, though I do think uh, Tobias has some personal issues. I Like, this is his coping mechanism. Um... But, I mean, what do I care? He makes fun music, and put, they put on a hell of a live show. Definitely recommend seeing them at some point in time. Anyway, so to me, Melior is the album that sounds like the world that these characters, uh, in the world that he's been creating, that all of this inhabits. And that's not dissing on previous albums, but this is the band really coming into their own. It's hard to explain without doing too much of a deep dive onto previous albums, but the look, sound, and aesthetic of the band really comes to fruition here. And I guess that's the easiest way to explain it. Now, I'm not going to talk about the lyrics as I go through these songs. I'll bring it up towards the end of the th- as the theme of the album. Alrighty, so into the music of Meliora. We get a bit of a haunting start with Spirit. It opens with a theremin, choir, and this glockenspiel. And then it gets into building all these instruments and really gets the train rolling. I wasn't sure of the song for a while you know, when I first listened to the song, but listening to the album again, it's a really great opener. Uh, Next is the bass and drumming feast for the ears from the pinnacle to the pit. I love this bass riff. Uh, It's it's the riff that really drives the song. And from a production view, uh, the mixing of the drums, and this is something that I love when you have a really good producer. It's a really small thing. They don't edit out the tapping of the hi-hat pedal, which is fantastic. Um, 
to me, it's akin to editing out the breathing, <gasps> that kind of sound before someone sings on vocals. It just adds texture and life to the music. Uh, the next song, Circe, was the lead single, um, and it had a fantastic Harry-inspired music video to tag along with. It's, uh, it's really fun. Um, he is, it's a fun twist of a song. When you first listen, when you first listen to it, you're thinking, oh, this is a nice little love ballad. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. That is until you realize that he's actually singing about the devil. But even, even this song, it just sounds brilliant. It's really awesome. Um, it's a bit of a standout for me. You just have these sweeping melodies and they just, they call for you to sing along. You have the harmonizing of the guitars, and it's, honestly, it's like pop-driven songwriting. Uh, it's a really fun song. Uh, Mummy Dust plays on the, uh, quote, in God we trust, um, end quote, um, that we find on currency by saying that, yeah, guess what, we all pray to one God, but that God is money. Um, and I really like the singing on Mummy Dust. It's like he's holding back from just outright screaming the lyrics. Um, it's really cool, and it's it's a little bit ominous. It's a little unsettling, but I really like it. Majesty starts with some riffy guitar that uh, harmonizes with the organ, and those two together sound so damn cool as the uh, intro to this song. Um, during the chorus, the drums play a syncopated beat, which makes it a really fun challenge to drum to, even if you're air drumming. No one apologizes for air drumming. Uh, Absolution. Uh, this is another standout for me. It sounds like it should have been the end of the album with the way it starts. You have a uh, harmonizing bass and the guitar, and it just really moves the song forward. Um, and I really, really dig the double vocal track on the, uh, the two bridges before the chorus. There's the normal singing, and then there's the softer, raspy, creepy voice singing in the same lines. It's a really great effect. The only thing that I'll say on the last song, uh, Duess and Absentia, is that the title translates to In the Absence of God. And with that said, we got the songs wrapped up, let's talk about the theme. With Ghost, you have quite a few Latin terms floating around, especially on the first two albums. It's a fun aesthetic they do with the song titles and lyrics. So Melior in Latin means the pursuit of something better and continuing the themes of other albums. Um, so the first album was the creation of the Antichrist. Uh, the second album was the Antichrist is on Earth. And then this one, Meliora, I guess is the aftermath of that. Um, it's about the absence of God. But in classic ghost form, they offer themselves as the next savior, that thing that people are going to look to for guidance. And you know, a couple of songs that I think right off the top of my head that really nail that are He Is and Mummy Dust. Ghost's whole thing is mocking religion, particularly towards Catholicism and the blind devotion that kind of comes from that. Wow, that got, <laughs> that got deep for a second. I mean, look, there aren't any bad songs on this album. Again, it's Ghost rising to the occasion and making their presence known, which is a little bit of the story of the album. Um, the pop sensibility sprinkled on this album, like with He Is, were definitely a launching pad for 
where they would be going next. Uh, first with the widely, hugely successful single Square Hammer, and then on the next album, Prekel, in 2018, uh, particularly on Dance Macabre. All in all, they're really fun and interesting band. It's a uh, drama, very drama-driven. Um, like I said in the beginning, I don't buy these guys as Satan worshippers. It's just part of the facade that they're playing around with. And I can't wait to see what they bring to the table next year with a new album and a, a new pope. But we're going to do a 180, and we're going to talk about one of the highest-selling female artists of the last 12 years. She has won a plethora of awards, and she's only released three studio albums. It is a much calmer, much more easy-to-listen-to album than compared to the previous entry. So, let's talk about Adele's 25 from 2015. I've drawn some comparisons of this album to actually Taylor Swift's 1989. Both of these two artists' songwriting is really, really strong when it comes to navigating and writing about relationships. Biggest difference to musically just are their influences. On this album, Adele continues her exploration of not only pop, but really utilizes soul and the R&B that she played around with on her previous album, 21. The lead single, Hello, starts the album, and it's a piano ballad, and it really leans on those uh, soul sensibilities. By the time the song is swelling in its last minute, we're greeted with a lush wall of sound. Adele's vocals are layered over these uh, bells, tubular bells that accentuate the uh, ending of a passage, and the drums of the backbeat, and the piano that sends us on our way into the melancholic journey um, that is the rest of the album. Send My Love to Your New Lover is a send-off to a former lover, a happy you're gone kind of song. And I love the music video. They shot Adele singing the song 12 different times and performing to it, um, and then all they did is just composited all of those shots on, uh, onto one. And so Adele danced differently each time uh, that they had filmed her, and offered a different mood. And they used the layering of the visuals to kind of mimic the layering of her vocals on the song itself. Really cool technique. Uh, it's upbeat and poppy, and actually that shouldn't come as a surprise because Max Martin and Shellback produced it like they worked with Taylor Swift on her songs for 1989. Jumping over to When We Were Young, much like Hello, it's another piano ballad. And I feel like it's a bit of the soul of the album. It's a reflective piece longing for the nostalgia of being young and cherishing, uh, cherishing those precious moments. In other words, <laughs> adulting is hard. But I do think this whole album, from the artwork to the songs themselves, they're all wrapped up on this melancholy, nostalgia-filled track. Uh, Water Under the Bridge one of my favorite songs, um, just what I was going through at the time and when this album came out. Um, this song goes out to anyone who's ever been through a breakup, easy or not. For me, this song, it's about reaching out to a former lover and saying, look, what we had was special. Why are you acting like it wasn't? Um, you know, it's mid-tempo with this sort of a trip 
Hoff riff. And Trip Hop, by the way, is a fusion of hip-hop and electronica. Um, it just got this little bit of like a skipping rhythm to it throughout the song. But let's change up the genre a little bit and talk about the gospel-inspired Riverly. And I love, love what musicians can come up with to make a song unique. Not that this is a new technique, I just, I love it when it's done. So in the background you can hear this, what sounds like a keyboard, sustaining notes. Um, that was actually created uh, using a sample of Adele singing a note and adapted it in a way on software to make it, now they gave it this choir-like sound that just goes in the background. And the title itself actually comes from uh, a tributary to the River Thames, the River Lee, uh, which is around where Adele grew up in London. Uh, next song, Million Years Ago. It's another song where Adele longs for the easy days as a child, but not from a relationship uh, aspect per se, but rather her fame. And she sings how it's affected everyone in her life. Um, Next, we're going to climb above the sorrow, and we're going to end on a high note with Sweetest Devotion. It's an uplifting song written to her son. Um, it's a bit of a tribute. Adele sings with real passion on this. I love it. Uh, sings about her inseparable connection with her child. And the idea that no matter what else happens, she will forever and always be there for them. So, for any mother out there, this song's for you. And with that, that is Adele's 25. She impresses me with her songwriting, um, much like uh, actually Jamie Lewis, in a way. Uh, they both write songs in a way where every album may have these tiny differences in sound uh, and thus, you know, the change in influence. But every song from their both of their catalogs, it sounds like it came from one point in time it has this kind of timeless classic sound to it um and adele does that really well on this album and i think that's what makes adele so fun to listen to the music changes here and there but it's uniquely hers and i really really like her for that she's a really cool modern music figure and i look forward to whatever she does next fingers crossed she has a new album coming out soon Alrighty, this next album, it's the only one on the list that has a uh, very somber and sad uh, incident coinciding with the release of the album that makes it a standout to me. David Bowie would release his 25th and final studio album, Black Star, on January 8th, 2016, which was his 69th birthday, a mere two days before his untimely passing. Much like with the recent passing of Neil Peart of Rush back in January of this year, Bowie's death, and by extension his illness, was a shock to the music community when he had passed. He left behind him a legacy of change, a legacy of breaking tropes, and a legacy of timeless music that we'll listen to for decades to come. So let's dive into his swan song, his love letter to fans, his art rock masterpiece, Black Star. Black Star is bold in that the album opens with a 10-minute epic, um, which is the title track. Now, the music on its own, it's beautifully haunting, 
and a little bit ominous. But uh, the short film music video that was shot for it is something else entirely. There are moments on the song that have a little little hint of a chant going on. And there's some jazzy sax going on in, in the middle section. It's slower and bluesier. And the time signatures blend really well together and they get kind of crazy. But overall, it's ominous and a little bit uneasy sounding. And I've grown to really love it, despite its 10-minute runtime. Next on the album is Tis a Pity She Was a Whore. And it was actually released as a B-side, maybe a demo-slash-B-side, to another song on the album, Sue, or In a Season of Crime. Uh, Both of those were released to promote Bowie's previous compilation album. Uh, but he re-recorded both of those songs for this album. Uh, the title is taken from a play of the same name uh, that showed up in the 17th century. Bowie stated that, quote, If Vortices wrote rock music, it might have sounded like this, end quote. Now, Vorticism was an art movement of the early 20th century, and there, after reading through it, I had no idea what this was before I read about it. Uh, preparing for this episode, there is too much to unfold on how that has a meaning in the song. So I encourage you to go look it up if you want, but I'm going to leave it at that. So I'm going to get on to the other music. It's really interesting backstory on how we found out and had a song about that. It's, it's bizarre. Anyway, Lazarus is one of two, I think, quintessential songs on this album. This is his true parting gift. I think his producer, Tony Visconti, put it best. He said, quote, His death was no different from his life, a work of art, end quote. However, when this song was first released in December as a single, I mean, if we're talking to a few short weeks before his passing, it really wasn't clear what he was talking about. Um, then they had a music video that was released, um, I think it was the day before the album was released. And people slowly put pieces together, wondering if he was sick or something. And then obviously, music video, and then his passing two days later, everyone knew what was going on. And listen to this opening line, for example. Look up here, I'm in heaven. Throughout this jazz and gothic rock-tinged tune, Bowie makes it clear what he's going through. Sue, or in a season of crime, is something like, I don't know, industrial jazz, if that's a thing. Uh, though the original is very much like, a, it's a seven and a half minute, like, straightforward jazz number. Um, I do love the bass line in the song. Um, It's played by uh, studio bassist Jay Anderson on the original and this one. And on this version of the song, it it has this heavier sounding thing going on, and it really drives the song um, in the background. And the drums are also fun. They're kind of chaotic. Girl Loves Me is the next song, and Too Many is the highlight of the album. I'm calling it my second one. Um, I just like really like Lazarus because it's about his death. I mean, yes, that's morbid, but it's just done in such a classy way. So, yeah, this song's going to take the cake for not talking about death and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and that's the main thing I want to talk about are the lyrics. For Americans, 
These lyrics are crazy, whack, and no one is going to make sense of them. However, our overseas friends in Britain will understand most, if not all, of it. The words on the song are a combination of NADSAT. Uh, some of you may know it's the fictional language created by Anthony Burgess for his novel A Clockwork Orange. Um, the other language is Polari, which is a form of British slang that was used by gay men in the mid-20th century uh, in London. So, take a listen to the bridge here. I mean, that stuff just makes no sense whatsoever. Um, but the, the wacky lyrics combined with the musical theme of the album, uh, it definitely makes it a standout. It's bizarre, and I love it for all it is. Dollar Days is the most stripped-down song on the album. Um, I'd say even verging on folksy, um, with this saxophone that, to me, it's reminiscent of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, uh, or even the Division Bell. On the last song, I Can't Give Everything, we find the Thin White Duke sending his final, beautiful farewell, seemingly coming to grips with his own identity. There's the faintest of callbacks to his earlier work, um, with the guitar in the outro, and it harkens back to his um, Ziggy Stardust Aladdin Sane days. But we, he wasn't afraid to face death, and in fact, I'd say more than say that he made peace with it. We look at these rock gods as just that, gods. These people appear larger than life, and we have this idea that they're immortal. But like you and me, they are just people, and they do eventually pass, thanks to the dictation of time. His message to us fans, to those loved ones he left behind, is a message of solace, that everything is okay, he's okay, and he's moving on now. Next, I want to transport you to a lunar lounge on the moon in the 1960s. The album, Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, released in 2018. The band, The Arctic Monkeys. This band of four merry lads from Sheffield, England, have had quite the amazing career since they came into the music scene in 2002. So, they asked themselves, why not for this studio effort totally change everything anyone's ever heard from us? So, for the most part, the band has stuck to its punk and rock roots for the majority of their career, culminating in the widely acclaimed 2013 release, AM. But the moment that this album starts with uh, Star Treatment, you know this isn't the same thing that they've done before. Star Treatment is a mid-tempo, easy-listening tune that greets you into the Lunar Hotel. American Sports is actually kind of relevant as it talks about the dystopian future using these exaggerated metaphors in order to illustrate contemporary problems, such as the collapse of civility and an over-reliance on technology. On the title track, uh, Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, we see him writing from the perspective of the hotel receptionist, uh, a receptionist named Mark. Uh, and musically, they use a uh, mellotron-type instrument called the, I believe it's pronounced, uh, Vaco Orchestron, which I think gives the chorus an ominous sound. 
uh, and it's really cool. Golden Trunks is probably the most political song ever put to record by the Arctic Monkeys. Most of their stuff's like a love song or something. Uh, and Turner user, uses the power of illusion and suggestion with the line, The leader of the free world reminds you of a wrestler wearing tight golden trunks. I can't lie, Alex Turner writes some pretty fantastic and fun lyrics on this album. Our next track, 4 out of 5, has, I think, the most old-school sound of the band on this album, uh, utilizing this really fun riff. As the title suggests, it's a satire about the hotel getting a takiera and how it's so wonderful and amazing that it got four out of five stars, and that's so unheard of. <laughs> Again, Turner has some really interesting lyrics on here. There's a term that pops up a few times called the information-action ratio, and it comes, comes up several times throughout the song. And it refers to how relevant information is to you and how it affects you. And it's awesome and kind of mind-blowing that Alex not only read about this somehow, but he also managed to write it into the song and make it sound natural, which is bizarre. And again on the song, there's another ominous keyboard sound accenting the breaks uh, in the vocals during the verses that calls back to that Mellotron's uh, kind of sound in the title track. Science fiction, um, the song Science Fiction, is a bit of an ode to science fiction as a genre by which we explore our own reality. Um, again, back to that escapism Turner set up earlier. Um, he was reading a lot of science fiction when he was writing this album, and so he threw that in there, and actually it was this song that inspired him to build out the theme of the album to what would become Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, a hotel casino on the moon. Um, on the song, I, I really love this theremin-like sound. I think it was just done on the synthesizer. But it makes me think of like old serial TV shows like Flash Gordon, you know, landing on an unknown planet. It's a fun little throwback, nostalgic kind of sound. Jumping over to the last song, The Ultra Cheese. As the album wraps up, so too does the story. Our narrator has been living on the moon, so he reflects on those feelings of isolation away from friends and his special lover. In the lyrics, he makes a note about Steinway. So what better way to wrap up the album than discussing the process behind the music? Alex Turner wrote the bulk of the album in 2016, but instead of writing on a guitar as he usually did with the previous albums, he wrote songs on a Steinway Grand piano that was actually gifted to him from the band's manager. And it is so clear to hear that piano influence on the album uh, all over the place. You can hear it. Now, this loungy, spacey, out glammy pop rock album is a total change in sound for the band. Uh, but it's a welcome one. The sound teleports you back in time so much that you begin to see the vintage styles of shag carpets and wood panels and the bright colors of orange and yellow with hints of brown. Alex Turner dives into hyper-realistic satire and escapism, bringing a fresh, though albeit total 180, 
uh, change in sound for the band. So, if you're looking for a 41-minute, easy-listening escape, then you found your match. Coming to a close and topping off my top 10 albums of the 2010s is Sturgill Simpson's Sound and Fury from 2019. I know it's a bit of a weird one, if any of you have listened to it, but it really stood out to me when I was going through my list. And I can't unhear or unsee uh, what my first experience was with this album. And I really love the music. So, a bit of a background on Sturgill for those that may not know. Um, and I think this will help inform the lyrical content on, on this album a little bit. His first three albums play around with country, and I say play because he's really not this Nashville sweetheart like, say, Taylor Swift was with her country music. Sturgill has played with more of an outlaw country kind of vibe. He talks of getting high. He talks of struggles of war. He was a veteran, if I'm not mistaken. All sprinkled with some light liberal views. Compared to the usual conservatism of country music, compared to the usual conservatism of country music, that's a bit of a stretch for Nashville. I say them. Um, that's what I mean. And that's kind of made him a bit of an outcast. So much so that while um, his third album, Sailor's Guide to Earth, won the Grammy for Best Country Album, the CMAs didn't even invite him, even though he was one of the most talked about acts uh, at the Grammys, that particular show. Now, I wouldn't say he has a vendetta against the country world, but they've definitely pushed him out, and I view this album as a bit of a response to the industry. So, with that, let's get into Sound and Fury. Uh, this album was released not only as an album, but as a Netflix anime film as well. And personally, I've started to get into anime a lot more over, over the last year, year and a half, for various reasons. But one in particular is that Anime is not solely kid-friendly like animation is here in the West, and I think a lot of that stems from the early days of the animation powerhouse that we all know and love, Disney. So, I've been enjoying animation that's much more adult-oriented and violent visuals and adult themes. Sound and Fury runs with the violent and sometimes unsettling visuals of anime, and it looks so damn cool with the music, but I digress. So, the album starts off with a guitar-driven instrumental called Ronin, and if you watch the film, some of these song titles make a tad more sense. Ronin is Japanese for drifter or wanderer, and the soundscape that Sturgill creates with his sparse guitar playing, it puts you in that position, wandering aimlessly in a desert that was once a sprawling metropolis. But just when the instrumental is swelling and sounds like it's going to end, it just dies off and transitions into Remember to Breathe with an Eastern-inspired flute melody that carries throughout the rest of the song. And I love these lyrics. Listen. Having one-way conversations with darkness in my mind He does all the talking because I'm the quiet kind Like, that is some amazing lyric writing. Uh, instead of fading off an ending, though, at the song, there's a break in the music with the static sound effect, as if someone's changing the radio station to a new genre or something. And that happens in between the rest of the songs on the album, which speaks to the different influences in the music heard. So, that takes us to the lead single, Sing Along, 
which is a four on the floor break breakup song. Um, and when that radio changes the station again, we're launched into full-on disco rock. And I gotta give props to bass player Chuck Bartles on this one for his bass playing. Since it's disco, he's driving the song. It's fantastic, and that is a very hard song to play on pace. So props to him. And the intro to the next song, Make Art, Not Friends, it starts as a chill, synthy, spacey sort of thing that slowly gets louder as the rhythm slows down, almost seizing until the proper song begins. And the, the slowing down of the music uh, fits the lyrics as it's a bit of a reflective view of the world and the times that we're in. Uh, best Clockmaker on Mars. Same kind of deal with the last song. It starts off with a mostly ambient intro, um, though definitely not as long. And then it kicks into high gear with Sturgill's hammer-on and pull-off guitar playing. Love that. During the bridge on All Said and Done, there are some serious Pink Floyd vibes. Um, particularly, I'm getting vibes from Wish You Were Here. Um, there's also some hints as to the theme of the album on the lyrics on this one. Sturgill doesn't really have an ego when it comes to being a creative force. He realizes that a lot of what we hear or see has already been done. It's just a different take on it. And I think that's what he's getting at with those lyrics. I'm going to jump over to M Mercury and Retrograde, which is probably the quintessential track on the album. Not just in sound, but in lyrics, too. And for those who aren't familiar with the term, retrograde motion is an astrological term that is when a planet appears when observed from us, Earth, uh, it appears to reverse direction. In astrology, Mercury is said to rule communication, so people think they think that things are going to go awry during retrograde motion. So Sturgill uses that as a metaphor for life events that were going on between the last tour and this album. Um, he got in some sort of an accident. He was put on some quite heavy medication that may or may not have influenced his anime-inspired kind of feel. And yeah, so he was dealing with some crap while he was writing this album. And, and I think the biggest thing um, is that he hits back at the haters. So with that, I would love to go in depth about Sturgill's lyrics on this album. He's a really brilliant songwriter, and I love that he plays around with all sorts of sounds and influences and manages to somehow cohesively, cohesively sorry, put it all on an album. Listening to his previous record, you can definitely hear the birth of what would become Sound Fury on here. And with that, those are the last of my top 10 albums of the last decade. So, I'm going to list them all out one last time. Making Mirrors by Gautier. Clockwork Angels by Rush. Random Access Memories by Daft Punk. Trouble in Paradise by LaRue. 1989 by Taylor Swift. And then on to do today's list. Uh, Meliora by Ghost. 25 by Adele. Black Star by David Bowie. Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino by the Arctic Monkeys, and last but not least, Sound and Fury by Sturgill Simpson. But did you really think it's going to be so easy? Ha! 
Of course not. I have a list of honorable mentions. <laughs> um, I have just five. Of course, there are countless others that I want to talk about. But here's my quick honorable mentions list. Swago Faults by Wolfgang. Midsummer Station, Owl City. Like Clockwork by Queens of the Stone Age. Mandatory Fun by Weird Owl. And Virtue by The Voids. Thank you all for joining me on this week of Rock and Talk with Dak. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify so you never miss a beat. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating on iTunes, uh, send some feedback on Twitter, or simply spread the word. Tell a friend. It all helps. This presentation is made possible by listeners like you, so I appreciate all your support. Be sure to tune in next Monday, and remember, every day is a gift. That's why they call it the present. See you next time.